Hello, welcome to series two of the Dead People podcast and welcome to 2021. Finally, last year was, uh, it was something, wasn't it? It was definitely a challenge. So we are out of that year now and hopefully things will start looking up. But for now, we're going to focus on the dark stuff in January. In January, we're going to look at serial killers, criminals, and just some disgusting people. But they're dead now, so it's okay. (laughs) So, this is a trigger warning. A trigger warning for this episode. This includes murder, children being murdered, and unfortunately, sexual abuse. It's horrendous. Today, we're talking about Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, our first double act, our first two twosies, our first two dead people in one episode, episode. So, uh, yeah, it's a dark one, so buckle in and uh, <laughs> make sure you're in a good mindset, because this is upsetting. You don't have to listen to it, but it is upsetting. And obviously, I will be as sensitive as I can be. I will not go into too much, too much details if it's too grotesque and too disgusting. Um, but you know, it's I'll keep it to the facts, and uh, yeah, we'll get through this together. Let's see how it goes. So, this is Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So, Ian Brady, Myra Hindley, they were most famous for the Moors murders, and they were carried out between July 1963 and October 1965 in and around Manchester, England. The victims were five children, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans, aged between 10 and 17. At least four of them were sexually assaulted. It's this is vile. It's disgusting. Oh God. Okay. So let's go and let's dive in and find out more about Ian Brady. Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland, as Ian Duncan Stewart on January 2nd, 1938. His mother, Margaret Stewart, was an unmarried tea room waitress. Now, no one knows the identity, the real identity, of Brady's father. It was never really reliably ascertained. But his mother said he was a reporter working for the Glasgow newspaper and he died three months before Brady was born. Brady's mother really struggled and she had little support, so... After a few months, she was forced to give Ian up for adoption. Well, kind of adoption, but kind of just, she gave him to the care of someone else. They were called Mary and John Sloan, a local couple with four children of their own. And Brady took their family name and was known as Ian Sloan. Various authors and various sources have kind of alluded to the fact that Ian used to torture animals when he was younger. But Ian denies this as an adult. He uh, objected to the accusations. He was not happy with them. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I probably was made up because, you know, it's a whole serial killer kind of, uh, what's the word? It's like a, you know, bit cliche in it. So he might have done, but, you know, it's a trope, isn't it? A serial killer trope, that's the word I wanted. But, yeah, he wasn't happy with that accusation. So at age nine, he visited Loch Lomond with his family, where he reportedly found out that he loved the outdoors. He found an affinity with it and just really enjoyed himself outside. <laughs> Which does, That sounds dodgy, but he did. Um, and the family ended up moving back to a new council house on an overspill estate at Pollock. Now... Brady got accepted to uh, Shawlands Academy, which was a school for above-average pupils, so he was quite bright when he was younger. But his behaviour worsened at Shawlands. As a teenager, he twice appeared before a juvenile court for housebreaking. Twice. Jesus. He left the academy at age 15. His behaviour wasn't great and he just gave up. And took a job as a tea boy at a shipyard. And nine months later, he began working as a butcher's messenger boy. I don't know why a butcher would need a messenger, but he does. So uh, there's that. I don't know. What would you, what would the message be? You know, we've got chicken. Oh, beef is a red meat. Oh, there's blood on my steak. You know, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm a, a massive meat fan, obviously. What? Never mind. But anyway... <laughs> Brady had a girlfriend how am I single when this prick's got a girlfriend I mean it didn't last long the relationship did end that was when he threatened her with a flick knife a knife he threatened her with a flick knife you know one of those little things I don't know but um, do you know, the reason why was because she danced with someone else so you know he got a bit threatened by that and uh, got the knife out. Obviously. That's what you're doing it. That's a, a fair reaction. Ian. Hmm. It's a bad sign of things to come. But uh, yeah, Evelyn Grant, her name was. She was a smart woman for leaving this man. <laughs> Do not blame her. But uh, yeah. So Ian appears before the court again. This time there are nine charges against him. Nine. And shortly before his 17th birthday, he was placed on probation. He wasn't arrested, he just got probation. But there was one condition. He had to live with his mother. By then, Brady's mother had moved to Manchester and married an Irish fruit merchant called Patrick Brady. Now, Patrick got Ian a job as a fruit porter at Smithfield Market and Ian took Patrick's surname. So Ian now is Ian Brady and he's working on a fruit market in Manchester. Are we up to date? Are we are we are we there? Okay. Okay, so Brady's in Manchester now. Things are he's going alright, he's got a job. Well, he's got a job, but within a year, less less than a year, he uh is caught again for more crimes. He's stolen something out of the market and he gets sent away. He's still under eighteen, so he gets sent to Strange Ways, a juvenile place. But he was sentenced to two years in a Borstal for, and I quote, training. So he went to Latchmay House in London, Hatfield Borstal in West Riding of Yorkshire. And then 
um, he was discovered drunk on alcohol he had made himself. I mean, that's pretty impressive, but he made the alcohol himself. So he was moved to a much tougher unit in Hull. He's been all over the place. He's been to Yorkshire, he's been to London, he's been to Hull. They, they must have been few and far between these kind of ball stools. But he was released on 14th of November 1957 and he returned to Manchester. In Manchester, Brady took a job which he hated and he was dismissed from another job in a brewery. Now, Brady applied for a job, a clerical job, at Millwood's a wholesale, chem a wholesale? wholesale chemical distribution company based in Gorton. Now, he, his, his colleagues, colleagues, I can't speak. His colleagues said he was quiet, punctual, but very short-tempered. Um, he sounds right. Sounds a bit serial killer doesn't he? But yeah, he would just study in his room and read by himself for hours. He was very introverted but very angry and short-tempered. He would read books like Teach Yourself German, Mein Kampf, <laughs> and uh, as well as works on Nazi Nazi atrocities. He, oh God. God. So as well as being a murderer, he obviously enjoys Nazi literature. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, on to Myra. Let's find out about Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley was born in Crompshaw on July 23rd, 1942, and raised in Gorton, which was a working-class area of Manchester. Her parents were Nellie and Bob. Uh, Bob was an alcoholic, but uh, he also beat her regularly when she was a young child. The family house was in poor condition, and Hindley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed in their room. No privacy. And their living situation, if you thought that was shit, it got worse. It deteriorated further when Hindley's sister Maureen was born in August 1946. About a year later, when Hindley was five, she was sent to live with her grandmother nearby. Hindley's father had been known in the army as a hard man, and he expected his daughter to be equally tough. He taught her to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. When Hindley was eight, a local boy scratched her cheeks, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father, who threatened to leather her if she did not retaliate. Hindley found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. As she wrote later, at eight years old, I'd scored my first victory. Hindley's relationship with her father had brutalised her. So Hindley's first job was a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, made teas, did odd jobs. She was the kind of bitch of the office, I suppose. Oh, and she typed. But everyone liked her. She was liked well enough that when she unfortunately lost her first week's wage packet, don't know how she lost it, but she lost it somewhere, they all kind of collected some money and replaced it for her which is really sweet she didn't deserve it obviously but you know sweet very nice intentions at 17 she's already been engaged to someone she's found someone after a really short kind of period of knowing them they're engaged 
But you know, several months later, she calls it off and decides the young man was too immature and unable to provide her with the life that she wanted. She had big plans, big plans. Hindley also took weekly judo lessons at a local school, but found partners were a bit, a bit scared, a bit scared to train with her because she would never loosen her grip, which isn't great. And a bit scary and a bit maniacal. So uh, don't blame them. She was probably quite intimidating as a little girl. <laughs> God, she was quite scary, isn't she? I mean, you've seen the picture. She's terrifying. She's ugh, dead behind the eyes. And then she took an engineering job in Gorton, but was dismissed for, like, not turning up. You know, it kind of helps if you get a job to turn up. So, uh, yeah, fair. I'd fire you too. One of Hindley's closest childhood friends was 13-year-old Michael Higgins. Michael lived nearby. In 1957, Higgins invited Hindley to go swimming with friends at a local disused reservoir. But instead of that, Myra went elsewhere with another friend. Higgins drowned in the reservoir. Hindley, a good swimmer, was deeply upset and blamed herself. She collected for a reef and the funeral at St. Francis's Monastery in Gorton Lane, where Hindley had been baptised as Catholic in 1942. In January 1961, an 18-year-old Hindley joined Millwoods as a typist. She soon became infatuated with Brady, despite learning he had a criminal record. But Hindley was fascinated. She was, ugh, just in love already. There were strong feelings. Hindley began a diary. And although she had dates with other men, some of the entries were all about Brady and how fascinated she was with him. She eventually spoke to him for the first time on the 27th of July. That's seven months later. Fuck's sake, Myra. Get on with it. Ridiculous. And then, a few months after that, we're talking 22nd of December, that's been like nearly a whole year, Brady asked her out on a date to the cinema. Now, people are saying, loads of uh, kind of reports are saying they went to go see Judgment at Nuremberg, which would make sense, being that Brady loves Hitler, like loves him, big fan, Stan. <laughs> but Hindley says it was King of Kings. I don't know what that is. Sounds shit. But their dates followed a regular pattern. They'd go to the cinema, usually watch something that's X-rated or, you know, 18, a bit naughty. Porn, maybe? I don't know. But they saw something they shouldn't be seeing. Something a bit gruesome, probably, and a bit weird. Then they went back to Hindley's house and drank German wine. I I don't know why. Oh, well, I do know. They're obsessed with Nazis. But why German wine? I'd, I've never tried German wine. I, I might have to. I'll let you know how it goes. I'm going to try German wine. But Brady then gave her loads of books. You know, all his Nazi stuff that he loves. And they spent their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another. What the fuck? But do you know what they were reading to each other? Nazi atrocities. That's weird. That's disgusting. 
ew, creepy. Hindley began to kind of change her appearance. She wanted to be Aryan, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, the perfect race, apparently. I was doing the finger quote thing on perfect race. It's not the perfect race, but, you know, it's Aryan, the Aryan perfection ideal, you know. So she bleached her hair blonde. It's ugly, babe. Don't bother. You look ugly. And she applied thick crimson lipstick. It didn't look good. It did not look good. Mate, just put some conditioner in there and you'll be fine, Myra. Just ugh, creepy. These two creep me out. They're horrible. But uh, she did cons uh, kind of express some concern in a letter to a childhood friend. Um, there were parts of Brady's personality she was not a fan of. For example, you know, she she po well she was poisoned and drugged by him. Yeah, yep, he he drugged her. But uh, she was still obsessed with him. That's weird. Jesus, would would you, if someone drugged you, would you want to be in a relationship with them? Like, are you okay in the head? No, no, you're not. Hmm, concerning. Well, anyway, uh, later on in her life, she writes a 30,000 word plea for parole. It was written in 1978 and 79 and submitted to the Home Secretary, Merlin Rees. Hindley said this. Within months, Brady had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. So Myra would change her appearance more and more as she was with Brady, which isn't good. It's not a good sign, a bit toxic. But she would you know, change her clothes and be a bit more risque, a bit more slutty. That feels gross saying that about a murderer, but she was a bit slutty. Anyway, you know, it, it's okay. She's a murderer. She's not very nice. I can make fun of her. That's how I'm coping with this. But anyway, she would wear clothes that were risque. You know, high boots, short skirts, leather jackets. Ew. Gross. And uh, the two became less sociable to their colleagues. In other words, rude. And although Hindley was not a qualified driver, she passed her test on the 7th of November, 1963. Um, well done, I guess. Congratulations. I mean, she'd failed three times before, but you know. Well done, Myra. Bravo. Bravo. She'd often hired a van and uh, the couple would plan bank robberies in this van. Hmm. Well, Brady and Hindley's um, plans for robbery came to nothing. Thank God. Well, I mean, I'd rather they were bank robbers than murderers, but you know. No crimes. Yet. But they became really interested in photography. You know, Brady already owned a box brownie, 
I think that's a camera, which she used to take photographs of Hindley and her dog Puppet. They would also take some, like, explicit photos, because they're gross. By June 1963, Brady had moved in with Hindley at her grandmother's house in Bannock Street. And on July 12th, the two murdered their first victim, Pauline Reed. Okay, so now we're going to go through the murders. This is going to be horrible, so I'm going to do it quickly. I'm going to get over and done with, but I'll tell you all we know. Okay, trigger warning, sexual abuse, murder, horribleness. Pauline Reed. On July 12th, 1963, Brady told Hindley he wanted to commit the perfect murder. After work, he instructed her to drive a borrowed van around while he followed on his motorcycle. When he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlights. Driving down Gorton Lane, Brady saw a young girl and signalled Hindley. He did not stop because she recognised the girl as an eight-year-old neighbour of her mother. Sometime after 7.30pm on Froxmore Street, Brady signalled Hindley to stop for 16-year-old Pauline Reed, a schoolmate of Hindley's sister Maureen, on her way to a dance. Hindley offered Reed a lift. Once Reed was in the van, Hindley asked her to help in searching Saddleworth Moor for an expensive lost glove. Reed agreed and they drove there. When Brady arrived on his motorcycle, Hindley told Reed he would be helping in the search. Hindley later claimed that she waited in the van while Brady took Reed onto the moor. Brady returned alone after about 30 minutes and took Hindley to the spot where Reed lay dying. Reed's clothes were in disarray and she had been nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat, including a four inch incision across her voice box, inflicted with considerable force. When Hindley asked Brady whether he had raped Reed, Brady replied, of course I did. John Kilbride. In the early evening of 23rd of November 1963, Brady and Hindley offered 12-year-old John lift home, saying his parents might worry he was out so late. They also promised him a bottle of sherry. Once Kilbride was inside Hindley's hired Ford Anglia car, Brady said they would have to make a detour to their home for the sherry. En route, he suggested another detour this time to search for a glove Hindley had lost in the moor. When they reached the moor, Brady took Kilbride with him while Hindley waited in the car. Brady sexually assaulted Kilbride and tried to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade. That was before strangling him with a shoelace or string. Keith Bennett Early in the evening of 16th of June 1964, Hindley asked 12-year-old Keith Bennett who was on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight to help in loading some boxes into a mini pickup, after which she said she would drive him home. Brady was in the back of the van. Hindley drove to a lay-by on Saddleworth Moor, and Brady went off with Bennett, supposedly looking for a lost glove. After about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone, carrying a spade he'd hidden there earlier, and in response to Hindley's questions, said he had sexually assaulted Bennett 
and strangled him with a piece of string. Leslie and Downey. Brady and Hindley visited a fun fair in Ancoats on December 26, 1964 and noticed that 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey was apparently alone. They approached her and deliberately dropped some shopping they were carrying and asked her to help in taking the packages to their car and then to Wardlebrook Avenue. At the house, Downey was undressed, gagged and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and killed, perhaps strangled with a piece of string. Edward Evans On the evening of October 6, 1965, Hindley drove Brady to Manchester, to a railway station, where she waited outside in the car, whilst he selected a victim. Brady reappeared in the company of 17-year-old Edward Evans, an apprentice engineer who lived in Hardwick, to whom he introduced Hindley as his sister. They drove to Brady and Hindley's home at Wardlebrook Avenue, where they relaxed over a bottle of wine. Smith, a friend of the couple, was also there, and he says this. I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was terrible. Terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible. Smith then watched Brady throttle Evans with a length of electrical cord. Brady sprained his ankle in the struggle, and Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own, so they wrapped it in plastic and put it in the spare bedroom. Obviously, they were both arrested. So, first we're going to Brady and what happened to him in prison. So, following his conviction, Brady was moved to HM Prison Durham, where he asked to live in solitary confinement. He actually wanted to be in solitary confinement, which is crazy. And he spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985. And he was sent to a high security Park Lane Hospital, which is now called Ashworth Hospital. He made it clear that he never wanted to be released into the main world. I mean, he probably knew that he would be hated and he, he was completely villainised and rightly so. The public would have hated him. He would have been murdered, most likely. So he knew that he was probably safer in prison. In 1982, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Lane, said of Brady, This is the case, if ever there is one, when a man should stay in prison until he dies. And he did. In 2007, John Straffan, another murderer, died. Um, he spent 55 years in prison for murdering three children. He died in 2007, so that meant that Brady became the longest serving prisoner 
in England and Wales. Brady also corresponded with people outside the hospital. He sent them letters. In one letter in 2005, Brady claimed that the murders were merely an existential exercise of just over a year, which was concluded in December 1964. By then he claimed that he and Hindley had turned their attention to armed robbery, for which they had began to prepare by acquiring guns and vehicles. So, yeah, they, they wanted to carry on with their robbery plan, which is a bit... Uh, scary them with guns they never used guns in their crimes but they wanted to in 1999 uh, brady's wrist was broken his right wrist wrist <laughs> his right wrist was broken um there was a, apparently an hour-long unprovoked attack by the staff i don't know how true that is um i don't know if they'd be that dodgy to attack an inmate but you know he does deserve it <laughs> so i'm not against it but uh, after that, Brady kind of went on a hunger strike to kind of, he was a bit miserable, obviously. So he went on a hunger strike. Now, in English law, there is the Mental Health Act of 1983, is it? Um, which I've studied extensively due to my old job as a carer. But um, yeah, the Mental Health Act, they're not allowed to let you starve. They have to feed you if you're being treated for a mental illness. Uh, if the treatment is for their mental disorder, they have to be fed because they have no, um, they have no say. They have no right of kind of the people in charge decide for you because you are not able to decide because your mental disorder. So he was force fed and transferred to another hospital because he felt ill. So while he's in another hospital, um, he just stays there and occasionally starves himself and he doesn't want to live anymore. He is suicidal at this point. Good. But he saw no point in making any kind of apology. He didn't publicly apologise, but he tried to express his remorse through actions. So he would transcribe texts into Braille, which is strange. Um, he once offered to donate a kidney to someone who needed it, but it was refused and blocked from doing so. So that kind of made him even more suicidal because he just thought, what's the point? In 2012, Brady applied to go back into prison. He didn't want to be in hospital anymore. And he wanted to starve himself to death. After receiving end-of-life care, Brady died in res of restrictive pulmonary disease at Ashcroft Hospital on 15th of May, 2017. Yay! The inquest after Brady's death found that the kind of hunger strikes had not been a factor of his death and he just died of natural causes. Um, he was also cremated without a ceremony and his ashes were disposed of at sea during the night. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this horrible, horrible story. Finally. <laughs> well done if you've survived this far. Let's see how Hindley, let's see how she did in prison. So she lodged an unsuccessful appeal against her conviction immediately after the trial. She tried to deny it. She corresponded with Brady by letter until 1971. And that's when she broke up with him. Their relationship ended. Not by text, by letter. I mean... That's a bit better than text, I suppose, but it's still a bit shit. But, you know, they don't deserve happiness. 
it's fine. They occasionally contacted each other after this, but very sporadically. Several months later, Hindley had fallen in love with her prison, one of the prison wards. Her name was Patricia Cairns. This was not unusual in Holloway Prison, which is rubbish and terrible. Like, apparently, loads of the officers were gay, which is fine. That's not the issue here. That don't matter. The gay stuff is fine. But they had relationships with the inmates. That wasn't... That's that's terrible. Like, no. Fair enough having relationships with the other staff members, but not the inmates. Terrible. So, anyway, Hindley and Cairns were in a relationship. They were girlfriends. Now, with help from Cairns and the outside contacts of another prisoner, Maxine Croft, Hindley planned a prison escape. But it was thwarted when impressions of the prison keys were intercepted by an off-duty policeman. And Cairns was sentenced to six years in jail for her part in the plot. Good. Now, Hindley was told she would spend 25 years in prison before even being considered for parole. Only 25 years, though. Now, Downey's mother, one of the victim's mothers, um, she was at the centre of a campaign to ensure that Hindley was never released from prison and she died in there. Like, yeah, she wanted her to die. And Downey's mother, until she died in February 1999, regularly, regularly gave television interviews, newspaper interviews, anything, whenever Hindley's release was rumoured. Now, in February 1985, President... Uh, President? Sorry, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher told someone that his proposed minimum sentence of 30 years for Hindley and 40 years for Brady were too short. She actually said, I do not think that either of these prisoners should ever be released from custody. Their crime was the most hideous and cruel in modern times. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the first time I agree with Margaret Thatcher. And I'll never say that again. In 1987, Hindley admitted that the plea for parole she had submitted to the Home Secretary eight years earlier was, and I quote, on the whole, a pack of lies. Ooh, you bitch. Ooh, she's horrible. Then Home Secretary David Waddington, it's a good name, imposed a whole life tariff on Hindley in July 1990. Yay. <laughs> After she confessed to having been more involved in the murders than she had admitted. So, the stories I read earlier, where she was mainly a bystander, but she did sexually assault them, she probably, you know, definitely helped Brady. Hmm. Horrible. So, in 1996, the parole board recommended that Hindley be moved to an open prison. She rejected the idea, but in early 1998, she was moved to a medium security prison at the HM Prison High Point. Between December 1997 and March 2000, Hindley made three separate appeals against her life tariff, claiming she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. <clears throat> Can't speak. She was a reformed woman... Oh my God. Reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. There we go. But um, they were all rejected. By the courts, and rightly so. On November 15th, 2002, Hindley, 
aged 60 and a chain smoker, died from bronchial pneumonia at West Suffolk Hospital. Yay! She also um, got angina in 1999 and she was hospitalised after suffering a brain aneurysm. She had a very small service at Cambridge Crematorium and about 8 to 10 people attended the short service. No relatives though. None of her family showed up. So obviously they disowned her. Good. Now, such was the strength of feeling more than 35 years after the murders that a reported 20 local undertakers refused to handle her cremation. Four months later, her ashes were scattered by her ex-partner, Patricia Cairns. Yay, and that's that. They're both dead. Hooray. Um, oh. Oh. Horrendous. So, that was the first double death episode. Exciting, wasn't it? Wasn't it great? I had a, well, good time? I, I didn't. It was difficult. It was a hard one. But, you know, January we're being dark because it, <laughs> it's a good way to start the year, isn't it, obviously? But thank you so much for listening. Well done for getting all the way through if you did. It was a long one. And we've got some more disgusting people coming up in the next few episodes. So enjoy. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this year. Hopefully it'll be a good one. Hopefully you had a lovely new year. And um, yeah, look after yourself. Stay safe. Don't die. And I'll talk to you very, very soon. Thank you.